the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. How do you know when a culture is going over the edge? One of the ways you can know is by how it treats its children. Recently, I saw a horrifying video of an escapade on a flight from Dallas to Colorado, an American Airlines flight, in which a mother named Amanda Pendarvis was attempting to care for her two-year-old son named Waylon. Waylon has asthma. As anybody out there, I'm sure there are many folks out there who battled asthma will know, or anyone who has lived with someone who has asthma, or even just anybody who has friends with asthma will know. This is a condition that is no small thing. It takes regular accountability and care. You can lose your breath easily. If you lose your breath, you could even die, depending on the circumstances and your ability or inability to respond to them. Two-year-old Waylon was on a flight. I don't know all the circumstances that occurred in this episode, but it appears from video uh, that was released and and went viral on the internet afterward that he was terrified. He's a two-year-old boy. Kids get very scared on flights. And furthermore, the flight attendant on this American Airlines flight, a man apparently named Carl, was demanding that this little boy, two-year-old Waylon, who has asthma, wear a mask. Mask compliance, it seems, was being enforced with iron rigidity. There's a lot to say about mask compliance and mask mandates. I have tackled this in a different podcast, and I'm not going to do an extensive discussion of them here. But it is important to note that what this attendant attendant was enforcing was a mask mandate on flights. And he was enforcing it to the degree that a two-year-old boy who has a lifelong illness that prevents him from breathing well. He literally, at different points in his day, cannot breathe, ran afoul of this policy. You might think that in a society in which this sort of mandate prevails, there will nonetheless be a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of adults, hopefully, who nonetheless see in a kind of common sense fashion that a child in this kind of condition in a situation that often terrifies children in an understandable way, and in addition has difficulty breathing, needs care, needs treatment. That is, after all, seemingly what airline attendants would be there to provide, at least in part. But no, in this instance, it appears that the cops were called on this mother, Amanda Pendarvis, and her son, Waylon, and they were taken off the flight and rebooked for another one. I want to point out, firstly, on this episode of The Antithesis, that this is an inhumane policy. We are all getting used to this sort of policy, and 
I'm speaking here with particular respect to children. A little boy who uh, is two years old is already going to be a very challenging candidate for wearing a mask in the best of circumstances, especially wearing a mask on a plane, on a flight when he is scared. But this little boy has just grounds, <laughs> more than just grounds, you could say, for not wanting to wear a mask beyond normal ones because he cannot breathe normally. He needs help. He could die. No doubt, I'm guessing, as a two-year-old boy, his condition of asthma terrifies him. He has moments where he loses his breath. He needs his mother to, to be there for him and to, to give him his inhaler and calm him down and help him through that. I'm sure that happens repeatedly. I myself have not had asthma, but I've had loved ones and friends who have struggled with that condition. And as I said a few minutes ago, it is not a small thing. It can be very scary indeed to lose your breath, to be unable to breathe. What is more scary than that in natural terms, in actually understandable terms at some level? This is especially true, of course, for a little boy. But in our context, in a context ruled by what I call totalitarian safism, in a context that is mastered seemingly by the fear of sickness, but more than that, the fear of death, it makes perfect sense for an adult flight attendant who should care for this child and should show kindness to this poor struggling mother. Instead, to kick them off the plane, to call the cops on them. They're an offender. They're effectively acting in an evil way, this mother and her son, per the dictates of totalitarian safism. Things make sense in this new order that we suddenly find ourselves in. Friends, I want you to step back from this situation for just a moment, and I want you to think about this afresh. In a context like ours, dominated by fear, dominated by concern about an illness that is a real illness, but nonetheless must be addressed rightly and carefully, framed appropriately, it is now a good thing for a two-year-old to get kicked off a plane for not wearing a mask when the two-year-old cannot breathe well in the best situations. This is one of those moments, and we've had many of them, in which you get the opportunity to step back, as I said, and to think for yourself afresh about where we are. Let me speak candidly for a moment. With the spread of COVID across the world, and with the spread accompanyingly of totalitarian safism as it developed not in every context. Some contexts responded well and appropriately. Others did not. Others went way over the top and continue to be way over the top. Australia, for example, seems to have transitioned into some kind of police state all because of this uh, pandemic, as it is sometimes called. With these circumstances, you and I have a chance to think about this and to say, wait a minute, is this good? 
And my candid admission that I was building to is that many of us did wear masks. Many of us uh, did adopt different measures or social distance or uh, many of us have uh, or some of us have been vaccinated. I'm not trying to get into all of these issues, but I am here to say that this is an opportunity, an instance like this, an injustice, an inhumanity, like what just unfolded on this flight, is a chance for you and me to pull over and think and think about where we are and think about how society is being restructured with seemingly no vote taken or no new law changed at the Senate level, for example. What is happening to us is that our culture is shifting into one that embraces totalitarian safism. And I want you as a Christian, whatever your practices have been with masks, let's just focus there for for today, whatever your practices have been with your children, my children have worn masks in this lockdown era of the last year and a half. Let me be clear about that. I am not here to say that if you have done so, if your family has done so, then your family has ceased to be Christian or you have committed the unpardonable sin or something like this. This is a very sticky issue. And especially as this all was hitting us afresh for the first time, it has not been easy to know what to do in different seasons. And I want to recognize that and acknowledge it here. My word here is not fundamentally to condemn people who have found themselves in difficult straits in the last year and a half, who have had all sorts of measures and mandates uh, placed upon them, and who have tried to navigate that to the best of their ability, making hard decisions in the midst of it. So, to speak more clearly, I am not here to condemn people who have had their children wear masks in different contexts. But what I would say in fall 2021 is that I believe many of us now do have that moment to pull over, so to speak, and think about this afresh. And we are able to see in a case like this one with tiny two-year-old Waylon that this is an unjust situation. Things are not playing out rightly here. Something has gotten way out of hand that needs badly to be reeled back in. And I believe as Christians, we need to play our part in that reeling back in. You see, children, it seems quite clear from many studies, are not nearly as susceptible to COVID as, for example, elderly adults. Uh, Children are not at risk in nearly the same way that that older age bracket is. So children as numerous societies and countries have recognized, need to actually be handled in an appropriate fashion with regard to this illness sweeping our world. Children can live normally. Children need to live normally. In fact, I actually think not only children need to live normally, but we all need to live normally if somebody is at risk, for example, if somebody is suffering as people are around us from different illnesses, then they should take appropriate measures to be quarantined and to be helped in that context. The Bible itself makes clear that if people get sick, as people definitely do in our world, then they should be treated in that fashion that I just mentioned. But children who are not in grave danger, though our society seems to act as if they are, 
do not need to have normal life disrupted. And certainly, in late 2021, do not need to live in a pretend world in which they are in the gravest possible danger. They are not. Children do not need to wear masks on this plane, on this flight. Children do not need to wear masks in school. Children, I believe, should not be made to wear masks in church. Children should not wear masks outside. Brothers and sisters, I'm putting myself out there. It is true. I believe that we should stop masking our children. Many of you, no doubt, already have. Some Christians have resisted mask culture longer than others, even perhaps from the very start. I understand that. I understand that there are perspectives among the church that, that range pretty, pretty variedly here. And I'm not trying to go back through and litigate every moment of our global lockdown and all measures and mandates that have flowed from that. I am simply trying to say at this point in late 2021 that we know a lot. We know a lot about COVID. We know a lot about children and their susceptibility or lack thereof to the disease. And we can see that a ton of people have actually gotten COVID and have recovered. And we know that this is not equivalent to the bubonic plague or something like this. We know that COVID has a, what is it, 99.7% survival rate. And we know that the 0.03% that does not survive it, and this is no small thing to us, but is concentrated heavily in elderly adult groups. That doesn't mean we wave a hand at this illness. It does mean that we treat our children appropriately and we help them and we return them to normalcy to the fullest possible extent and we stop masking them. We certainly don't mask them when they are tiny children and when they are tiny children who cannot breathe well in the best of circumstances. Something is being lost here, friends. Right is being turned to wrong. Wrong is being turned to right. We're treating our children inhumanely. Little Waylon is an example of this. The reason I'm talking about him is because his, his case, his episode, is an opportunity for us to examine this broader societal matter, to take stock of it, and in my urging, to stop doing this sort of punitive measure. What is at play more broadly, though, is that our culture continues to operate, as I said, under a worldview I call totalitarian safism. James White, the theologian, used that phrase safism some weeks ago, and I've, I've modified it a little bit, but very similar idea to what he proposed. We're in a context of totalitarian safism. That's one major uh, worldview player nowadays that we didn't necessarily see coming. Big government has been a huge problem, no pun intended, in America for generations. And yet this is a new manifestation of that just in the last year or so, totalitarian safism. But even more broadly than that, our culture, as I alluded to some minutes ago, is mastered by death. People are gripped by the fear of death. People fear death more than anything. People fear death far more today, many of them, than they fear God. Far more. 
So we have a huge worldview issue as Christians here. This does not mean that we opt out of society. It does not mean that we cease trying to love our neighbor. It does not mean that we uh, do not any longer submit to government in a substantial sense. As I've said in past episodes, I think that we do everything we can to love our neighbor. We understand what love of neighbor actually is. It doesn't mean doing anything your neighbor says to do. It means doing what God commands you to do and then reaching out to your neighbor in love and truth. And we try as best we possibly can to the fullest extent we're able to, to submit to government. So these things are in play. But we must also know that everyone's not out there operating on a neutral plane. Our government itself is not operating from a position of absolute, perfectly balanced and calibrated neutrality. There's much to follow, submit to, and obey in terms of public measures, but we must also recognize that there are evil, godless worldviews that are preying upon us, that are creeping into all levels of society, and that ultimately bear down on the church, because Satan's ultimate target is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Jesus has a, a deep has the deepest possible love for his bride, the church that is literally the body of people. He goes to the cross to redeem. They are redeemed by his blood on the cross. So Satan, as a kind of mirror to Christ, hates the church more than anything. If Jesus loves the church more than anything in this world, then Satan hates the church more than anything in this world. And all of Satan's schemes and stratagems ultimately, I believe, terminate with a a program and a hope of destroying God's people, destroying the church, affecting the church at the very least, causing the church to be corrupted and worldly, causing the church to be diminished in its witness, causing the church to divide. Hebrews 2 is a passage then we need to go to to respond to our culture's fear of death. I believe Satan is having a field day with the fear of death because many people have transitioned out of what could broadly be called a religious worldview and have basically no connection to anything that even tries to traffic in transcendent reality. I'm not talking about uh, born-again Christianity here. I'm not talking about biblical revelation. I'm just saying many people have lost any connection even to any religion true or false. And so they have no broader call to to a higher way of life. They have no broader accountability, and they have no framework for the challenges, the ups and downs of life, including death. Don't hear me as saying it is a good thing to have a false religion that in its own terms prepares you for death. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying, though, That when people transition out of a religious frame of mind, when they leave behind religious worldviews, one of the major effects you will expect to see play out, and we are now seeing play out, is that they will have no framework to even begin approaching massive challenges and problems like death. In one sense, that's what religion is there to help you with to help you grapple with the reality that you are dying from the minute you come into this world and you will surely die one day. That's, at least on paper, what many religions, possibly even every religion, attempt to help people answer and address. Many do so falsely, wickedly, and thus leave people 
with absolutely no comfort or hope whatsoever. In fact, there is only one system. There is only one worldview. Or if I can use this term, there's only one religion that tells the truth about death. And there is only, let's tweak our language here to be sharper and clearer. There is only one faith, the true Christian faith, that not only tells you the truth about death, but prepares you to die. And we see I think the Bible's most encouraging word, or certainly one of them, on this subject in Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Let's read it together. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is an incredibly encouraging passage. It could not be more relevant for today. It could not more speak to the conditions that are allowing the creation and promotion of what I call totalitarian safism. Behind that, I believe, in a pretty simple form, is the fear of death. And are those who are using the fear of death in order to control others, reshape the world, and create the kind of conditions that lead to it asthmatic two-year-old boy getting kicked off an airplane. It all goes back, and it goes back, I believe, to the fear of death. Look, if you have the power of death, and the devil has that power, and sinful mankind serves your will, what you are always going to seek to do is use that power, hold that power over unbelievers, because unbelievers really and truly are enslaved to you. Satan is the one who does rule the unbeliever. He doesn't rule the unbeliever ultimately, as if God is sovereign over the church and Satan is sovereign over unbelievers. But this text is clear, as others are, that if you are an unbeliever, you do fear death. In fact, you're in lifelong slavery to it. And the devil, verse 14 says, has the power of death. So you are in the devil's grip. You are in the devil's own hand, if you will, as an unbeliever. Your fear of death will manifest in different ways. People don't react to the fear of death in just one form. They seek out many solutions. They adopt many attitudes. They embrace many mindsets and systems and ideologies and even religions in order to cope with and deal with, they think they are, the fear of death. There's not just one form. But hear me once more, if you are not in Christ, if you are not the offspring of Abraham, in other words, a born-again believer in a New Testamental context appropriate to Hebrews 2, then you are in slavery to the fear of death. You are in slavery to sin. You are in slavery to the devil. You are headed for hell, and you are the devil's plaything. You are the devil's instrument. And you truly, in this world, have no hope. You are going to die. 
You know you're going to die. Your conscience tells you you deserve to die, per Romans 2, 14 to 16, and you are in a desperate state. There's no way to sugarcoat this. You're without hope. You have no hope in natural terms. So my first reflection here is this. We naturally do fear death, and in our natural state, we should fear death. We are in a terrible position. And the one who has the power of death, Hebrews 2.14 says, is the one who is our functional head, our functional Lord. What a terrible position to be in. This is where our society is. Does this not help to make sense of where we are today? If there is less influence of the church, and in technical terms, if there are fewer Christians in a given area, for example, you should expect that the fear of death will rise. Now, keep in mind that humans' natural response to the fear of death is going to vary, as I said, and so some are going to party and live it up because tomorrow they die, and others are going to embrace any measure of safety they can even think of in order to try to protect themselves from death and keep it at bay. Both are acting in a futile, absolutely futile way, but nonetheless, they are responding to the fear of death. Here's the second truth we need to know from this passage. Christians are freed from the fear of death. This is where it is so important to understand objective truth and the objective reality of Christian doctrine. In actual historical terms, Jesus Christ entered into this world, became a man, truly God, truly man, lived a perfect sinless life as the perfect Son of God, and then went to the cross to die for our sins. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Again, verse 14, he partook of flesh and blood, and he destroyed the devil. What does that mean, though? We use this language. We might read this in our quiet time. What does this mean? I'm writing a book about this. It's my next book. It's tentatively entitled Jesus, the Warrior Savior. It's a theology of the atonement. I cannot wait to fully tackle this. I'm already working on it now. And, uh, and so this is where I'm living uh, theologically and vocationally these days. But even if I wasn't writing a book, I adore this passage, and I love thinking about this truth. Jesus, by his death, has freed us from eternal death. That's the simplest form I think I know to put it in. Jesus, through his death, has freed us from eternal death. And in so doing, he has ensured that Satan, the devil, has no power over us. We no longer can be mastered and controlled and sent into a Christless eternity with the gleeful backing of the devil, those conditions no longer apply. They no longer apply because the God-man fought for us. The God-man went to the cross for us. The God-man died for us. Because that has obtained, we are no longer slaves. We no longer serve the devil. And this means We are going to glory for all eternity. We will go to heaven and we will live forever with God in the new heavens and new earth. And that means then, to go back to my basic summation of this point, the Christian is freed from the fear of death. You are sprung from the prison. You are liberated 
from the trap. No one can put you back into it because Jesus' atonement is objectively realized. The resurrection has ratified the effects of the atonement. The resurrection is the vindication of the cross work of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection means that the life which Christ came back to is ours. But it's not just that Jesus came back to life. Do you know this? It is that he was raised as the resurrected son of God. He was raised in his glorified form. And so a new humanity truly has broken out as a result of the resurrection, the resurrection which follows from the atonement. We're putting a lot on the table, ending up doing that here theologically. But all of this means that you and I are freed from the fear of death. All of this means that the Christian, like the Son of God, has, has risen to spiritual life in our conversion. We have died in Christ and we have come to life in Christ. Now, we're not in eternity. We're not in heaven. We're not in the new heaven and new earth. So the finality of our resurrection has not occurred. We are not in the final form of our resurrected state. But we are even now in this life delivered from slavery, delivered from the fear of death, no longer under the sway of the devil. This is incredibly good news. It is not angels that Christ came to help. Riffing off of verse 16 here in Hebrews 2, he came to help Abraham's offspring. He was, verse 17, made like us in every respect, not in terms of sin or even a sinful nature, but he was made like us in every other respect, in every human respect. And he became a merciful and faithful high priest, but not just a high priest who stands at the ceremony of atonement as in the Old Testament days. He is the high priest who stepped onto the altar. Jesus is the high priest who made propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus bore the Father's wrath on the cross. Jesus was judged guilty by the Father for us. He was declared legally unrighteous, though he was not ontologically unrighteous. He was legally declared unrighteous for us. He suffered and bled and died for us. He was forsaken of the Father at the cross. His fellowship with the Father was interrupted. It is not that the divine father and the divine son had a, a kind of ontological breaking of the Godhead at the cross. It is that the communion and fellowship of the father and the son was interrupted at the cross. That is how significant the dying of the son of God is. That is how significant him being under the sentence of wrath from the father is. And the cross is not an uh, a, a son-hating father and a, a, a sad, forlorn son dying. The cross is all orchestrated by the father who loves the son and sends the son to die. And it is the will of the father to crush him. And so it is not that the father transitions into some kind of hatred of his son, but it is that the father judges the son legally guilty, puts him under sentence for the first and only time. And so there is this terrible moment where Christ is crying out to his father and his father does not answer him, even as Christ entrusts himself to the father. Because of this cross work, 
you and I are freed from the fear of death. And this means thirdly, we are not allowed to fear death. The Christian, in the bluntest possible terms, cannot fear death. Your license to fear death is taken away. I don't mean that you should act recklessly and think that is theologically justified. You need to distinguish what I am saying from that wrong conclusion. You should live your life wisely. The Bible constantly commends a wise life. A wise life is one in which you do not do stupid things, in which you do not try to hasten your death. That is no good thing as a Christian man or a Christian woman. So you do live circumspectly and wisely with regard to death. You're not trying to hasten your death. You're not trying to undertake actions that would foolishly put you in line to be killed. But neither do you fear death any longer because death has died in the death of Christ, to paraphrase John Owen. You have no fear of death because death, excuse me, ultimately has become the gateway for you to glory. The worst possible thing, death has become the best possible thing. The worst possible thing, dying, has ultimately been turned around by God. God has the power to execute these dramatic reversals such that even though dying should be horrific alone, when you die as a Christian and only as a Christian, that is actually the gateway to everlasting paradise, to living eternally with God. And this means that in this life, then, when you look at death, you don't see death itself as a wonderful, positive thing. Death is, death is the last enemy, as Paul says in his writings. But you don't fear death as the unbeliever fears death. Because your death means that you will be translated to the presence of God. And this means then that you cannot fear death. You should look in the, mor- you should look in the mirror in the morning and say, I do not fear death. You should say that out loud to yourself. You should pause this podcast if you're listening in your car or on a run or on a walk. And you should say out loud, I do not fear death. You should even shout it. <laughs> You should write it on your hand and look at it throughout the day. I do not fear death. Who do you fear, Christian? You fear God. You fear only God. You reverence and esteem God as the high and holy one. You want to obey Jesus Christ and become like him to the fullest possible extent by the power of divine grace working in you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But you do not fear death. Death has lost its grip on you. Death is not the means by which you will be judged eternally. When you die, you will go to be with God. Death, therefore, is not a positive reality, just like cancer is not a positive reality, just like uh, any pain or injury or terrible calamity that befalls your family, that you grieve and we all mourn, is not a positive reality in and of itself. It's an effect of the fall. But the power of God's redemptive grace is so transformative that it takes something that is is terrible, is our very dread foe, and it turns it around. The experience of death itself is not positive, but the effect of death is. Let me repeat that just to make sure you understand it. 
the experience of death is altogether not positive. It is not a happy thing to have our bodies be breaking down over the long haul. It is not a happy thing to have illnesses and sicknesses and challenges and sleeplessness that you fight over years and even decades. That's not happy. That in and it of itself is not good. But God uses death to good effect. The effect of death for the Christian is good because you do not enter a Christless eternity. You do not enter eternal judgment in hell. You enter a God-drenched eternity. You go to be with God. God is the highest good for the Christian. God is the chief good of the Christian life. Heaven is so wonderful, and the new heavens and new earth are so wonderful, not because you are reunited with your spouse, not because your pets are there, not because you get to do the most fun things you can imagine on this earth, but because God is there. We don't know the full extent of what the glorified eternal state will be like. It is a wonder beyond wonders. Let that be said. And I don't therefore know what every minute is going to be like in that experience. But I know this, the chief good of death, the chief good effect of death is that we go to be with God. And so all of this means that in sum, We don't fear death any longer as the Christian because death has lost its teeth. We still will die. That is not good. But the effect and outcome of death is impossibly, wondrously good. We go to be with God for eternity. It is the gateway to God. And this means finally for our podcast today that our lives should be structured accordingly. Our fourth truth here building off of Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, in contradistinction from our culture, a death-fearing culture, a culture in many ways enslaved to the fear of death, is fourthly that our lives should be structured accordingly. By which I mean if we're not allowed to fear death because death has no hold of us, we shouldn't be living our life as if we are gripped by the fear of, of death. Unbelievers do live in slavery to the fear of death. I have made that plain already. But Christians don't. You've already heard me say that we should seek to be wise in our lives. You've already heard me say that we shouldn't live recklessly. Let that be said. Let that be true. We do take all sorts of measures on a daily basis in order to try to be healthy, in order to try to keep our families healthy and our loved ones healthy. If we get a cold and we have a visit scheduled for a dear elderly family member, we might cancel that visit, um, not because of abject fear, but simply out of love and wisdom. So, so let all this be said and be true. We want to live that kind of life. You should. Even to sharpen it, you must. But you must also know that your life objectively is not ruled by the fear of death. The unbeliever's life is. Yours is not. What effect does it have on you? What effect does it have on the church that we don't fear death? That we're not mastered by death? That we're not ruled by death? We were, now we're not. How does that change our experience? How does that change the way we raise our children? How does that change the way we gather as the body of Christ on a weekly basis? How does that change the decisions we make about our families with regard 
to, for example, masks. How does this change the way we raise our children? I repeat myself. I don't want to try to resolve every tension right here and right now on this podcast. I don't want to try to answer every hard query that is out there. There are, as I try to keep repeating on the antithesis, gray areas. There are differences of opinion in terms of application on the situation at hand. There are things that we disagree over. And I don't want to divide the church unnecessarily in these respects. But I cannot help but say it. Because Christ has died for us, because Christ is risen for us, we don't fear death any longer. And we will stand out from the world in this respect. It's not just like that will coincidentally happen. That must happen for us. We must be different from unbelievers in fundamental terms in how we approach death. Death is not dealt with for them. They are enslaved to it. Tragically, we're praying for them. We want them sprung from that. We want them to live eternally with Jesus Christ. We want to share the gospel uh, every chance we get. We want to proclaim Jesus Christ to put that in better terms all we can. But God has to do the saving. And as he is sorting that out, we can't live like the unbeliever lives. We're not unbelievers. I feel like I am saying the most basic reality I possibly could, but I feel like it is, it is a forgotten reality today. We are not just like unbelievers, but with a little Jesus card in our wallet or our pocketbook or whatever you want to call it on our phone, a QR code on our phone that is scanned when we die and we go to heaven. We are not just like unbelievers except for that one small detail. We are totally different people. We are a called out people. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a redeemed people. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We do not think like the world. We do not live like the world. We do not die like the world. We are distinct. It is not that we stand against the world belligerently and hatefully. We seek to speak the truth and love to the world. Ephesians 4.15, we try to love our neighbor. We try to reach out in kindness. We seek to bear the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, at all times in our lives. We all fail when we do fail, and we recognize that. We confess that to God and repent of it and pick ourselves back up in the Spirit's power and keep on going. But we are distinct from the world. We are not the same. We are an alien race while we live here. And one of the fundamental markers of our alien status is that we no longer live ruled and mastered by the fear of the death of death. Let me conclude. I can't conclude any better than simply to read the words of scripture once more, praying as I do so that they will rest in your mind and reorient your thinking and give you that opportunity to pull over and think about where we are. Don't just act today. Think, reflect. If you're married, talk this over with your spouse. Talk these things over. Get a plan. 
Don't, don't just be a log bumping down a stream, constantly acted upon, but never having a scheme or a plan. In particular, if you are a man, if you are the head of a home, if you are the husband of one wife, if you are shepherding children, Lord willing, to know Jesus Christ as Savior, you lead out in getting a plan. But you as spouses talk together about that and get wisdom. And as you do so, remember that Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. And remember what Jesus has done, believer. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has not tried to do this. Jesus has not taken his best shot at this project. Jesus has done it. Jesus has done the work. And now you turn around, believer, and you say to yourself, to your neighbor, perhaps shocking them on your morning walk, to any around you, to church members, while you want to live wisely and uh, cautiously in the world in appropriate terms, you also want to live aggressively for the glory of God. And you say, toward that end, I do not fear death. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.